and even in the Washington Bureau of the Wall Street Journal, there was sort of a, a, a belief that women couldn't really do the math that's required to understand arms control. So while I would be <laughs> covering the, the presidency, when it came to his, his arms control summits, they would scrape me off and have me stay home and send the guys. And I remember talking to my boss and saying, well, what am I supposed to do? And he said, well, why don't you stay home and do a piece about uh, Nancy Reagan's favorite dress designer, which sort of gives you an idea how sexist <laughs> the thinking was. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Jane Mayer is one of America's top investigative reporters. The chief Washington correspondent for The New Yorker, Mayer relentlessly exposes the hidden forces shaping American politics. Her best-selling book, Dark Money, The Hidden History of the Billionaires Behind the Rise of the Radical Right, documents the vast influence of the Koch brothers, and it was named one of the 10 best books of 2016 by the New York Times. In the past year, Mayer has exposed the right-wing funders behind Donald Trump's big lie about a stolen election. She reported how Ginny Thomas secretly supported the January 6th insurrection as her husband, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, considered cases that involved her. And this month, she exposed the shadowy conservative organization that smeared Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson in a failed attempt to derail her Supreme Court confirmation. Mayer often provokes the ire of those she exposes. The Koch brothers have hired multiple investigators to try to smear her. And the subject of her most recent expose tweeted out her phone number and email in an effort to intimidate her. Jane Mayer worked at the Wall Street Journal before joining The New Yorker in 1995. She has won numerous awards for her reporting. Esquire magazine calls Mayer, quote, quite simply, one of the very few utterly invaluable journalists this country has. Jane Mayer also serves on the board of the Vermont Journalism Trust, the parent organization of VT Digger. Jane Mayer, welcome to the Vermont Conversation. Thanks so much for having me. Readers know you as one of the country's preeminent investigative reporters, but they may not realize that your journalism roots are actually in Vermont. So tell us that little known story. <laughs> well, um, thanks so much. Yeah, um, without Vermont, I don't know if I would have been a reporter, but it gave me my first chance to try it um, on the smallest weekly newspaper in the state, which was the Weathersfield Weekly. My parents were living in Weathersfield and um, I had nothing to do in the summer. And I was a teenager and my mom said, oh, why don't you try to work on the weekly newspaper? So it was run by the Hunter family in Weathersfield Center. And um, they gave me a chance to, to try being a reporter, but it was so small. We also developed the photographs and we, um, printed the paper, and because um, Armstrong Hunter had a, a local uh, printing press, he printed it right there. We collated it, and then we put it in the back of the car, and we personally delivered it to our readers. So it was a fantastic experience. And that summer was an important summer for journalism, and I think it's probably that was almost as important. While I was doing something as as mundane as you can possibly do. Um, we listened 
all summer long to the Watergate hearings on the radio. And so we would hear these incredible hearings unfolding about corruption in Washington that had been exposed in the very beginning by two reporters, Woodward and Bernstein. And they seemed so um, heroic and in the public service that I thought they, you know, they seemed like an ideal of what you could do. And then you migrated to the Rutland Herald and the Wall Street Journal. Is that, do I have that sequence correct? Yeah, there was another paper in there in Vermont too, which was my friends after, after we got out of college um, started the Black River Tribune in Ludlow, Vermont. And I was the so-called theater critic. I used to go to the Weston Playhouse and write about the plays. And I also did some illustrating for it. I really actually wanted to be a, an illustrator and a cartoonist in the beginning. Um, and so we, we, that was another weekly newspaper. And then, um, then I tried to be a cartoonist for the Rutland Herald, but it would take me you know, two days to do a really good drawing, really good cartoon, and I would drive it over to Rutland and get $20 for it and think, God, I'll never make a living being able to do this. I didn't know how anybody could. So I got stuck having to write instead, and I got hired as a local reporter covering first hospital news in Rutland, where I'd pick up the lists of who, who died, who was born, um, and who was admitted. Hmm. So in 1984, you became the Wall Street Journal's first female White House correspondent. Um, what was your experience breaking the gender barrier in the White House press room? Well, um, first of all, it was it was it was kind of fun. Um, I was pretty young to have such an esteemed job. I have to say, I think they probably picked me partly for, or at least probably in large part for gender reasons. I mean, I'd been doing stories at the at the, the Wall Street Journal that caught the eye of the Washington bureau chief. I'd been in Beirut. And, um, and so he liked the stories I was writing. So there was, I like to think there was some talent involved, but I think they really wanted to have a woman to, and, and put a female at the White House at that point. And so, um, so I started covering Reagan. It was um, right before his uh, 1984 re-election campaign. And um, I mean, there was, <laughs> while, while it, I, I guess in some ways I was a beneficiary of affirmative action, there was still a lot of sexism. And even in the Washington Bureau of the Wall Street Journal, there was sort of a, a, a belief that women couldn't really do the math that's required to understand arms control. So while I would be <laughs> covering the, the presidency, when it came to his, his arms control summits, they would scrape me off and have me stay home and send the guys. Um, and um, I, you know, I, I, there, I, so I didn't get to cover Reagan's um, historic summit at Reykjavik. And I remember talking to my boss and saying, well, what am I supposed to do? And he said, well, why don't you stay home and do a piece about uh, Nancy Reagan's favorite dress designer? which sort of gives you an idea how sexist <laughs> the thinking was. Um, and Reagan himself was, you know, somewhat, somewhat patronizing. I remember I've inter interviewed him a number of times, but when he called on me in a press conference, he said, you, the little girl in red, you know, about a, a red dress that I was wearing at that point. I had just written a story about how he always is particularly called on women wearing red. Um, and he did. 
but I was the little girl um, in his view. But you know, I mean, it, uh, the world at that point, it, it, it was so normal to us. I, I barely took offense or barely took notice. I, I basically just sort of thought, you know, oh, well, really, you think I need to stay home during an arms control summit and write about a dress designer? Let me show you. And I would try to write something that actually mattered and, and just do my best. Um, well, so. let, let, let me leap forward here uh, uh, several decades and just skip over the fact that you had a, a whole intervening years of life and journalism. Um, you have been probably the most dogged investigator and chronicler of the reach of the Koch brothers. Uh, which is arguably the backbone of the right-wing funding ecosphere. Take us, give us a, a, a quick primer. Who are the Koch brothers and what do they want? So there's actually, you know, when you talk about the Koch brothers, it used to mean Charles Koch and his brother, David Koch. And David has now died a couple of years ago. And so you're really talking about one of the Koch brothers, Charles Koch. Um, and he is the principal owner of uh, Coke Industries, which is sometimes ranked as the largest private company in America. He um, is a billionaire many, many times over. And the business that he has is in fossil fuels. It's, it's, it's in refining oil and oil pipelines and some coal and um, gas and other things that it's, it's spread out to be a, a conglomerate that's also in chemicals. Um, if it, it owns nylon, I mean, it basically owns, made all the nylon. I mean, it's just a gigantic sprawling company, you know, multinational conglomerate. And um, Charles Koch is a really interesting fellow. Um, he, is an extremist politically who is a zealot on the subject of hating government. He, he doesn't want it to interfere with his business. He doesn't believe there should be regulations. Um, he's been hit a number of times with um, lawsuits having to do with his company's pollution, air pollution, uh, water pollution, climate pollution. Um, and um, he's taken umbrage at that. And, and, and basically he comes out of the John Birch Society wing of American politics. His father was one of the founders of the John Birch Society. By now he's a pretty old guy. I mean, he's in his, his eighties. Um, but what he did was for, he took this fortune, he, he inherited a fortune and made it tremendously larger. Um, and he poured it into becoming the primary sponsor of libertarianism in America. And so when he started maybe 40 years ago at, at doing this in earnest, it was, um, it was quite secretive. He's very secretive about his, his, his role in American politics, but he, he, his views at the time were regarded as so fringe so far out on the extreme right fringe that he was kind of a joke. And even fellow conservatives uh, sort of uh, made fun of him like William F. Buckley, who called him an anarcho-totalitarian. But, but by being persistent and kind of visionary in his way um, and, and so rich, he, he really made inroads into American politics to the point where he mainstreamed many of his extreme ideas um, and and um, they've now taken over much of the Republican Party. And the Republican Party, of course, has had huge impact on the direction of America. So this one man, Charles Koch, and his brother David 
by dint of using their money strategically, really shaped a lot of American politics and still do. Um, and Charles still does. Now, the Koch brothers, or just the Koch brother, Charles, uh, publicly, there was a public falling out with Trump that seemed to be a brief divorce. Um, explain what happened between Koch and Trump. Sure. Um, and so um, so by 2016, um, we've got Trump running for the for president. And Charles Koch, meanwhile, had another idea. He and a, he'd created by then a sort of a consortium of other incredibly rich uh, conservatives who were pooling their money in a jackpot. And they wanted to pick who was going to be the Republican nominee. And they had, I think they had $889 million between them ready to go. And they thought this was the moment they were going to finally get the White House and get the person they wanted in it. And um, they were foiled by Trump, who appealed more to voters than any of the other, I think it was like 13 or 17 other Republican nominees for the presidency at that point. All of the others were fine with Charles Koch. But Trump wasn't really playing Koch's game that much. Koch um, really likes to control the people he gives money to. And, and Trump is kind of like weirdly uncontrollable um, and, um, and has very different, you know, he had a different, I don't know if you can call Trump an ideology so much as a kind of an, an emotional thing, but, but he, at any rate, he, he, tr Trump's a strong man who wants to have power and Charles Koch, as I said earlier, doesn't really believe in government and doesn't want the government to have much power. He wants business to rule. So you had sort of this clash. And, and Charles Koch said in 2016 that the choice between Hillary Clinton and, and Donald Trump was like the choice between um, cancer and a heart attack. These weren't his, his <laughs> idea of perfect candidates. Um, so you would have thought then that um, the, the Koch machine um, in politics was um, defeated in some ways, but there was a, a, a reprise, a second chapter that was quite different. And what happened was by election night um, at where, where Trump was celebrating, none other than David Koch was right there with Trump. He popped up. And the next thing that happened, these two amazingly transactional power seeking figures in American politics had made a kind of a deal. And, uh, you know, I don't know how explicit it was or if it was just the matter of the sort of practicality. But basically what happened was the people who um, Trump picked for all of the positions that matter to Coke Industries, which were the environmental positions and positions having to do with regulation and the courts and taxes. These are the issues that matter to the billionaire Coke machine, which wants to keep its taxes really low and keep polluting and do nothing about fossil fuels and, and climate change. All those positions in the Coke in the, excuse me, in the Trump administration, it might as well have been the Coke administration. <laughs> they were filled with people who were allies of the Cokes, many of whom had actually worked for the Cokes. Um, and, and in exchange, uh, the Coke machine started to put money into Trump's um, uh, policy initiatives, particularly the big tax cuts for the richest people in the country. And so the, the Cokes poured money behind that in advertisements and, and pushed hard for it. And so they, they, they got a working relationship, not on every issue, but on the issues that really mattered to Coke industries. 
So you've also reported on Democratic dark money groups. What's the difference um, in your view between Republican and Democrat dark money influence? Well, the, the Democrats have tried to catch up with the conservatives. I mean, it's, it's really, you know, they've been behind, they were behind. And but by 2020, um, according to, you know, some calculations, the Democrats even spent more. I'm not sure if I it, it, it's really hard to quantify because let's just say define for a minute what dark money is. It's money where you can't figure out where it's coming from. So with that definition, it makes it very hard to quantify it accurately. It's going into groups where they don't reveal the, the original sources of the money. But basically, I mean, from my view, you know, which is just one point of view on this, trying to report on it, I see the, the conservative movement as much better organized still when it comes to this. And the, the Democrats are, the Democrats tend to pour money behind candidates um, and, and, you know, into specific races um, but um, and that it does make a difference, but but they have they don't really have the same infrastructure that the Cokes built up over all those years, um, which are it, it's it's an amazing machine, which it, which has the Cokes have funded over 350 programs in colleges and universities. So they're kind of inculcating their way of thinking. They've got a, an array of very far right ideological think tanks that turn out position papers and sort of alternative fact papers that sort of argue the opposite of what um, so many mainstream experts would say. For instance, the Cato Institute in Washington is a, an institute that the Kochs began. And I remember going over there and, and their experts were arguing that the polar bears had never been better off than they were in, in with global warming and you know no expert in polar bears believed this but they can put out a paper that says that and and they can pay maybe if you know a scientist or two to say that and and then you have both you know two sides of an argument where really truth um, and reality are on one side but you create what Kellyanne Conway called alternative facts so they've got these sort of factories for alternative facts in the think tanks and experts who go go testify in front of congress and um, and then advocacy groups Americans for Prosperity is the main one that belongs to the Kochs. and um, you know it's it, and they've got uh, groups that argue cases in courts and it, it's just a, a, a kind of a multi-purpose political machine and system that's been built up over the decades. The Democrats have some of that, um, just not as much of it, really. Well, bringing it up to today, your latest piece for The New Yorker looks at how the questioning of soon-to-be Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson um, that we saw in her confirmation hearings often reflected kind of views that began on the fringe, even the QAnon fringe, and then were the talking points of Republican senators as they questioned her. You trace the funding and the organization behind that phenomenon. So tell us about the American Accountability Foundation and also how this, this phenomenon of views moving from fringe to mainstream, how that and why that happens. Well, so I, I just came across this group. It's called the, the American Accountability Foundation, and it's an offshoot of another bigger group that is called the Conservative Partnership Institute. It's based in Washington, and 
it's it's um you know it 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 holds itself out it's it's registered with the irs as a charity as an educational group and and you can give to it and get a tax deduction yet it's both of those groups are deeply involved in partisan politics and they're staffed by people who came straight out of the Trump administration. Mark Meadows is there, Cleta Mitchell is there who's been sort of a primary lawyer for the conservative movement and a number of other people who've been very closely aligned with Trump are, are running these groups. And they've got a million dollars from Trump's um, political leadership pack. So, it's really kind of like a little island of Elba for all the Trump administration. And they actually had someone there um, who was just digging up dirt on every single Biden nomination, practically. He'd made it his, this group has made it its, its um, um, aim in life to stop every nominee of Biden's from getting confirmed. And they do it by just throwing buckets of mud at people. A lot of it is, um, you know, made of less polite substance, if you had asked me, if you go take a look at it. And I did, I've tried very carefully to analyze what their, the level of their work was. And, and there's a lot of, a lot of real disgusting smears that they were doing on people. And they tried to go after Katanji Brown Jackson um, and frame her as what they claimed was some kind of dangerous um, softy on child pornographers and pederasts. And, um, and that, that, that was the, it, they tried to make it stick it, but when you've got a nominee who's as, as prominent as a Supreme court um, nominee, um, there's so much attention to it that, that smears can kind of disappear when they're put in context. And when the press really scrutinizes them closely and the experts weigh in, and this is what happened with Jackson was there, there was an effort by this, this, this group, this slime machine is, is what the New Yorker called this group to go after her. And a, and a handful of Republican senators then picked up the oppo research from the slime machine and threw it at Jackson, but it, it didn't hold up under scrutiny. It turned out if you put her record in context, she actually had um, a very average record on the way that she sentenced um, people for sexual offense, offenses. Um, and it was no different than that of about a half dozen Trump judicial nominees who the same Republican senators had supported. So it, it kind of fell apart on close inspection. But the problem is this group um, has gone after a number of, of much west, less well-known nominees where there isn't that kind of scrutiny from the press and they're not famous and it's easier to really distort their records. And then a, a surprising number maybe, or maybe not surprising, but a large number proportion of the people they've gone after are women and people of color. And, and, and they're really, the, the thing that they've been saying this group has been doing a lot is, is um, trying to make a lot of arguments that are really racially loaded. It's very ugly, really ugly thing to see in American politics. And, and it's funded by, by uh, supposedly tax exempt contributions. So as you have exposed this network of funding and influence uh, on the right, I wonder, and most, you know, notably recently, uh, the role that Ginny Thomas, the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, has played in supporting the January 6th insurrection. What do you think people should be most concerned about? What concerns you most as you 
kind of shine a light in these dark money places? You know, I mean, I was just talking to my husband this morning and it, it's, it's so, I mean, I feel like it's, it's so obvious that it hardly needs to be said, but uh, honestly, it's really hard um, to not say that m money is really corrupting American politics. Um, the, that's the bottom line. Something's got to be done about this money um, because, you know, everyone wonders why can't Congress get things done? Why does it seem so dysfunctional? It's it's captured by private interests. What you want is the government to work in the public interest. You want the, you know, people, the government is us, you know, we're self-governing in this country, but what we're trying to do keeps getting hijacked by sort of secret private interests. And most people don't have the time to trace the money and see how this, this whole thing is getting distorted, the, these arguments and, and who's really behind them. Um, so I try to do that and put the information out there so that just ordinary people who are too busy to do this, they can say, oh, so that's who's making that argument. It's really the tobacco companies that are telling you to smoke and that it's not bad for you. You don't trust them when you realize who it is. There are people who are lining their pockets who are making self-interested arguments, but it's, it's hard to you know, keep up with it, frankly, as a reporter even. It, there's just so much money coming from so many places. It's, it's overripe for reform. You know, people who are jaded and skeptical about this just say, well, it's always been this way. Politics has always been captured by big money. But you know the details. Um, what's different and worse about where we are today than we were even 20 years ago? So, okay, so this is, this is, I am an eyewitness to say it hasn't always been like this. When I walked onto the political reporting at the White House in 1984, Ronald Reagan was running for reelection. He, as president, he did not hold a single fundraiser. He was accepting public financing and he had done that in 1980, as did Jimmy Carter. They didn't take private funds. Um, we've managed to clean up um, the money system a number of times in American politics. Of course, the money's going to come flowing back. It's like water. You know, you got to keep plugging it and plugging it. But, but you can you can fight it. You can fix it. We have reformed it, and 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 we're at a moment again where it's it's just plain washing everything else out with it. And so we're kind of you know, as I said, the, the time is ripe for reform, but it hasn't always been like this. It was not like this when I started. Being in the business of revealing secrets of people who very much want to keep their things secret has put you in the crosshairs. Uh, this latest article that you did for The New Yorker about the American Accountability Foundation, you report how the subject of that, uh, who you were writing about, posted your uh, email address and phone number online, uh, told you publicly to go pound sand. Um, and the Koch brothers hired, uh, I think it was six investigators, maybe more, maybe one less, um, to smoke out things about you that would embarrass you or discredit you. Um, what has been the personal fallout of these kind of attacks on you for doing this kind of reporting? 
Well, um, you know, you have to make sure that you don't have some big skeletons in the closet. I don't, but the, the worrisome thing is that they, they, they can kind of make them up. That's what we've seen. And, and, and people may be gullible and believe it. So um, basically <laughs> the upshot is my mom was just visiting for the weekend and she said, honey, don't take any cups of tea from strangers. <laughs> be a little careful words um, to live by <laughs> um so do you worry about your your own safety no i really don't um i you know it's it's an incredible thing to be a reporter in this country we're not it's not like you know knock on wood it's not like being in russia where th thank god where people who tell the truth are put in jail um, well, we've you, had a, you, know. you actually had a, a front row seat to the former Soviet Union and Eastern Europe. At, you were covering the fall of the Berlin Wall and the end of the Soviet Union. Um, I wonder if, you know, we're now talking openly about the rise of authoritarianism in the United States. Do you see parallels between what you saw you know, in Eastern Europe with this network of spies, which, you know, one could almost say the Texas laws to have vigilantes turn on their neighbors if they're getting abortions um, is reminiscent of things like the Stasi used to do in East Germany. Um, I don't know, is, has your in your career, do you feel like it's kind of come full circle where you're seeing some of the things you saw in Eastern Europe now echoes of that in American politics? I think it's, you know, it's it's a it's a pretty dark time. Um, I mean, we, you know, we, the, or it feels like a dangerous hiatus is what it feels like right now. I think the Trump years felt quite dangerous, you know, and being called an enemy of the people was awful. And, 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 and the things that were happening were, were frightening. And the, the attempted coup at the end of his time was, was is still shocking to me. Um, so, I mean, I think what, yeah, I mean, in some ways that some of the things that I've covered in other parts of the world, I, I do see echoes of here. And it's made me realize that, you know, we're not, we're, we're, we're not um, protected from the, you know, human nature and the kind of awful history that's taken place in other parts of the world. It hasn't always been perfect in America either, but, um, you know, I, I mean, the susceptibility to to authoritarian strongman government that might, you know, um, and um, and just sort of uh, the kind of the hate and the uh, the idea that um, you know factionalism um, is it, it it's it that you see it in places like the Middle East when I was you know in places like Beirut where it's just you know almost barbaric what people do to each other so. I, I hate to see, you know, any of it stirring here. Um, it's certainly very different from Vermont um, in that, you know, this idea of spying on your neighbors couldn't be more different from the idea of just live and let live, which is a lot of what I think of as, as one of the lovely, one of the many wonderful things about Vermont. Well, finally, Jane, you mentioned at the beginning how you got into the world of journalism, partly inspired by the work of Woodward and Bernstein, holding uh, an earlier generation of uh, corrupt politicians accountable. Do you think that journalism and the work that you do still has the power to be that watchdog of democracy, of uh, pe the people? You know, I... I I think it's um, it's it has much less power now than than 
before the internet. The problem is that, you know, I mean, there are still fantastic reporters. There's amazing reporting done on during the Trump years by a lot of places. Um, and there's amazing reporting being done in a local level in a lot of places, including by BT Digger. Um, but, you know, the thing is that the internet is filled with junk. And so, so y y y we're competing now with outlets that are, that, you know, just are not quality. And I think it's hard for um, readers to separate out which is real and which is not real. And that, and that's been a real problem, obviously. Where is the hope in this landscape that you have chronicled, you know, exposing so much of the darkness? Where do you see the light? I actually think, I mean, I do, I'm actually quite optimistic always um, because I have seen change and I've seen change for good. I, th I think a lot of people have common sense if they can get the information and um, people of different political persuasions and types can, you know, can meet in on common ground. Um, and, you know, some of the things I've covered, I felt like I really did see progress. I did a lot of coverage during the Bush years of the, um, the torture um, program that, that was secretly being employed by the, the Bush administration on detainees in the war on terror. And, and I watched as um, our reporting, and it wasn't just me, it's our whole group of reporters and, and, and public spirited people in government and lawyers, they pushed back hard and they fixed a lot of it. I mean, and it's disappointing to me that Guantanamo is still open, but it's really been amazing to see, you know, things like waterboarding exposed and ended. Um, and so, I mean, so I have seen change take place and, um, you know, there's been a, there, there've been a lot of forces for good as well as these, you know, dark things. And I think like, you know, sh shining the light on them is the way to go. Well, Jane Mayer, I want to thank you for joining us on the Vermont Conversation. Thanks for having me.